Trinity Baptist Church. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. The word of the Lord. What I'd like for us to to think about this morning is what does it mean to be a star in our culture? If somebody in our culture says, um, I want to be a star, what are they what are they referring to? They want to be famous, right? They want to they want to have some level of celebrity. I how many of you still watch American Idol? Anybody else admit it? <laughs> okay, so there's three of us that admit it. I I confess Okay. I confess that I still record that show. Um, it is a, I don't know, I, I don't know why. But anyway, um, it amazes me that after 14 years, there are still these throngs of people who want to be a star. They, they want to be famous. And when we think of, of stars in our culture, we think of star athletes or movie stars or TV stars. And, and stars are not bit players. A star athlete is not, not a bench warmer, not somebody who plays, you know, three plays in a game. But a star athlete is somebody who, who has impact, makes great impact for the team. A, a, a movie star is not a bit player, but a, a movie star is, is somebody who's on the marquee. It's got his name out there, her name. A star is somebody who is extraordinary and, and is known for, for their ability or, or whatever. Question, do you think God wants you to be a star? Okay, there, I'm, sounds like about 20% of us. Absolutely he does. God wants you to be an extraordinary impact player. He wants you to stand out. Jesus called his followers, uh, said that his followers were light, that they were light in the world. You see, Jesus wants us to be a star. Now, we are in this series called Joy, and we've been, uh, we've, this is week number three, and the last two weeks, I've tried to make a case for joy, and we've been talking about the fact that, that joy is not just the emotion of happiness, that it's a state of being, that, that we can make some choices that will help us live in this state of being, that, that Jesus came 
to, to give us life that was joyful, life that was abundant. And, and so we kind of made a case for what joy is. What I want to do this morning in the next two weeks is talk about some practices that we can choose to do that will help us to live in this joy that God wants for us. And this morning, the, the specific practice that I want us to talk about is, I'm calling it indiscriminate gratitude, which is just another way of saying being thankful in all things. So to start us off, I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, now stop right there. I've said this before. But whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, what's the question you have to ask? What's the therefore, therefore? It refers us back to what has just been communicated. And what has Paul just talked about? He's just talked about the fact that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held onto at all costs, but he became like us humbled himself, took his sin upon, took our sin upon himself, went to the cross and died for that sin. That's the good news, that Jesus did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid the price for us. But the good news doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 10 and says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, because he humbled himself, God exalted him. He became a star, if you will. And then Paul says, therefore... Because of what Jesus did, because of the the life he lived and the sacrifice he made, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. What does it mean to work out your salvation? What it does not mean is that you work for your salvation. It doesn't mean you work to earn your salvation. That would, just, that would contradict everything Paul has just talked about. It would contradict what Paul has said in Ephesians. No, it's, it, it's not about working for your salvation. And it doesn't mean that you work to keep your salvation. God's grace is sufficient. Paul says that that we are to work out our salvation. And the, wor- the verb, work out, carries the meaning of, of work to full completion or work to get the most out of. If I say I'm going to the gym to work out my body, does that mean that I'm going to, to earn my body? No. It means that I'm going so that I can get, you know, bulging biceps, you know, 
and, and the washboard stomach so that I can wear those cut-off shirts on Sundays. And, and it means that I'm, I'm going to, to work out so that I can get the full potential out of my body. This, in, in Paul's day, this Greek word was, was used in relationship to, to mining. You would work out a mine which means that they, would, they were trying to get the most ore that they could out of the mine, or you work out the field, meaning you're, you're trying to get the greatest harvest possible. What Paul is saying here is that not that you need to work for our salvation or work to keep our salvation, but, but we need to work so that we can get the most out of our salvation, so that we can experience the fullness of what God saved us for. And then he says to do it with fear and trembling. He's not talking about the terror that, you know, being terrified at the condemnation of God because given what Jesus has done for us, we have, we have been made sons and daughters of God. And we don't, he hasn't, Paul told the Romans that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship, daughtership, so that we can cry out, Abba, we can call him Daddy. See, we don't have to be afraid of him. So what does it mean to to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It means, well, I get to do a lot of weddings. And on wedding day, I see a lot of fear and trembling. I see, you know, beads of sweat on the groom's forehead, or I see, you know, brides with tissues in their hands because they've got sweaty palms. That's not because they're afraid of what they're getting into. That's because they understand the enormity of what they're getting into. They, and they're excited about the potential of this relationship. That's the fear and trembling that Paul's talking about, that we understand the enormity of the opportunity we have as followers of Jesus and that we are excited about the potential of the relationship that we have with God. Now, you might be thinking, well, Okay, Keith, what does this have to do with gratitude and joy? Well, right after telling them to be obedient and to to work out their salvation so that they can get the most out of it, he says in verse 14, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Paul says, if you're going to be a star, you can't be a grumbler. You can't be a complainer. Why not? Well, I complain when I'm not getting what I want. I complain when my circumstances are not the way I want them to be. And that's what the people of this crooked and depraved world do. They complain. But that's not the model of Jesus. Jesus didn't complain when he stepped out of the throne room of heaven into a stable. Jesus didn't complain when he um, 
had to live an impoverished life as a carpenter and an itinerant preacher instead of sitting enthroned, ruling as king of kings. Jesus didn't complain. No, rather, he humbled himself. Taking on human likeness, becoming like one of us, Paul said. And he was a servant who was obedient even to death on a cross. And Paul says, that's why he was exalted, and, and that's what we are to do if we are going to shine like stars. You see, stars simply trust God. Stars praise Jesus regardless of circumstance. Friends, you can't praise Jesus and complain at the same time. You know that? You can't be praising and complaining. They don't go together. You can't shine light in a dark world and, and let people see the glory of Jesus when you're complaining. It doesn't work. And what's more, complaining is a joy killer. It robs us of life. Now, anybody here ever complained? Yeah, we all complain. Some of us complained this morning. Some of us complained walking to church. Some of us have complained while you've been in the building. It's just common to us. And we don't think it's a big deal. Do you think complaining is a big deal to God? I want to look very quickly at just a few verses from the book of Numbers. This is Numbers 11. And this is right before Israel is, is to go into the promised land the first time. Okay? And here's what it says in Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some, some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Teberah, which means burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Now, this doesn't sound like a huge deal, right? The people complained. Okay. What's the big deal about that? They didn't complain for the first ten chapters. There's no real hint of it. But here, three days into their journey, they complain because something about their circumstances, there was something about their circumstances that they didn't like. And so they complained. And it's interesting, it says they complained about it in the hearing of the Lord, which, by the way, is wherever you are. He doesn't miss anything. They complain about it the Lord hears it, and it says, When he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Is complaining a big deal or a small deal to God? It's a big deal. This is a big deal. The Bible says that it aroused God's anger so much so that... that 
he sent down fire that consumed the outskirts of the camp. Now, we don't know if that was just tents or if that was people or if that was livestock. We don't know. What we do know is that God was not happy. Complaining is a big deal. It's a bad sin. We downplay its sinfulness because it is so common to us. I love what a guy by the name of Paul Tripp writes. He says, we live with grumbling all the time. Isn't it amazing that we human beings can stand in front of a closet full of clothes and say we don't have a thing to wear? (laughs) Right? Or stand in front of a refrigerator full of food and say there's nothing to eat? We are angry at the food and go on diets because we're convinced that anything that ever tasted good is fattening. Isn't it remarkable that we have wonderful, activity-filled lives full of meaning and purpose and we grumble that we're way too busy? Or that we, we can look at everything that exists and find some reason to complain. Grumbling may seem like a little thing, a little sin, But I would like to propose to you that grumbling is a pollutant in the waters of your heart. And it will kill life. Israel learned that firsthand. That complaining, that God takes complaining seriously. It's not an insignificant little trifle that God just overlooks. It's easy for us to slip into the complaining mode, but that does not mean it's okay. And in the end, it will kill life. It will destroy your joy. So what's the converse of complaining? What's what's the antidote to complaining? Gratitude. And that's what Paul talks about as you go forward in Philippians chapter 2. After saying, don't complain so you can shine like a star, he says in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, don't complain, give thanks. This attitude of indiscriminate gratitude is what Paul calls the Philippians to just a few verses later in chapter 4, which which Greg recited for us earlier, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Indiscriminate gratitude is what he called the Thessalonians to when he said, um, he said, you know, be joyful always and give thanks in every circumstance for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I read a, a story recently about Matthew Henry, who, who some of you will know was, a, was an 18th century Bible scholar. And one day he was robbed by thieves and afterward he wrote this in his diary. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. (laughs) Second, although they took my purse, they did not take my life. 
Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not someone else. Isn't that great? Here's a guy who's just been robbed, and he writes in his journal for reason that he's thankful in the robbery. Four expressions of gratitude. There was a, a contemporary of, of Henry, another 18th century Christian thinker by the name of William Law, who had a similar outlook. He wrote this. Would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It is not he who prays most or fasts most. It is not he who gives most or is most eminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. But it is he who is always thankful to God. Who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. Could you therefore work miracles? You could not do more for yourself than by this thankful spirit. Let me read this again. Could you therefore work miracles? You could not do more for yourself than by this thankful spirit, for it turns all that it touches into joy. I love that. If you could work miracles, you couldn't do more for yourself than have a thankful spirit because everything it touches, it turns to joy. Friends, having a a heart of thanksgiving in all circumstances can have incredible impact on our lives as it it produces great joy. What I want to do for for just the next few minutes is I want to talk about three three things, three, three aspects of, of indiscriminate gratitude that, that if we think about them will help produce the joy. The first is that indiscriminate joy is an act of reorientation. It reorients us. According to the scriptures, the core and origin of the human predicament is ingratitude. Everything that is wrong with us starts from ingratitude. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans in in Romans chapter 1. He said, For all they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And if you read on in Romans 1, you will see that murder and lust and greed and sexual perversion and envy and every other form of human sin arises out of this seedbed of ingratitude. So what is it about ingratitude that is so fundamentally and devastatingly evil? Well, think about it. If you are ungrateful for the life that God has given you, you are essentially dismissing God himself. It is a dismissal of God. Not to thank God is to act as though he didn't exist and didn't matter. 
But when we give thanks, we recognize the fundamental truth of our existence, that all we are and all we have is ultimately from Him. And it is God that made us. And it is in Him that, as Paul says, we we live and move and have our being. What could be more fundamentally sinful than to ignore this essential truth? But that's precisely what ingratitude does, and that's why it gives rise to every other sin. You see, when we give thanks in all circumstances, we are recognizing God's grace. And I, I, I think this is interesting. There is a linguistic connection between the words gratitude, grace, and joy. They all have the same um, Greek root word, which is care, C-H-A-R. Um, grace is charis. Gratitude is eucharista. And joy is kara. So they're all, they're all linguistically connected, but what we need to understand is that it's more than a linguistic connection. It is the reality of the kingdom. You see, grace is God's mercy. It's his unmerited favor. The, the mystery, the great mystery of the gospel is not that sometimes bad things happen to good people, but that, that something great has happened to bad people. It's that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were broken, while we were rebellious, Jesus said, I'm going to give them grace. I love what Karl Barth says about gratitude. He says, gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. See, gratitude is the only appropriate response to the grace of God. And when we give thanks in all circumstances, we are reorienting ourselves around the reality of God's grace. That's why Paul says, if you want to get the most out of your salvation, if you want to get the most out of your salvation, don't complain. Don't grumble. But be, be thankful. You see, a spirit of complaint, which is basically ingratitude, <coughs> dismisses God while a spirit of thanksgiving reorients us around the grace of God, and that brings great joy. Now, I do need to throw in a little note right here. Some of you are thinking, Okay, Keith, but what about all of those psalms that are complaining? Right? I mean, every other psalm, David's complaining about something. Is that okay to do? Yes, it is. You see, there's a difference between, and it's all in the preposition. There's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. You see, when we're complaining to God, we're in relationship. We're, we're in, it's, a, it's a prayer that can end up brid, you know, being a bridge that can draw me into deeper intimacy with Him. But if I'm complaining about Him, which is what I do when I complain about anything, I'm basically saying, God, you're not on 
your game because I'm not getting what I want. When I'm complaining about him, that's sin. That's the difference. So, we're called to give thanks liberally, indiscriminately, even outrageously. And when we do that, we not only know the peace of God that transcends understanding, but we experience the joy of God that transcends understanding. Second, the practice of indiscriminate gratitude is an act of hope. It's an act of hope. When we give thanks, no matter what, we act on the premise that the future will turn out perfectly. Not better, perfectly. You see, the next moment may be devastatingly bad. The next decade may be devastatingly bad. But when we trust in God that the one who holds the last hour will, turn, will make our eternity a perfect one, then we can live in hope, right? Um, and we can give thanks and rejoice in that hope. Paul, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by, by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, hope is the firm confidence that nothing can separate us from God's love. And as Paul says in Romans 8, that our, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. With that conviction, we can, we can rejoice in every situation and give thanks in every circumstance. Indiscriminate gratitude is really kind of a reality check. Do we really believe that in the end we win? Do we really believe that? You guys know I'm a Cowboys fan, right? And I'm not going to say anything about last Sunday, except it was a catch. That's all I'm going to say. So, in late September, the Cowboys were playing the Rams. And it was a 1 o'clock game, and I don't usually get home until... 2.30 on Sundays, and so if the Cowboys are on at 1, I always tape the 1 o'clock game. So by the time I got home that day, I, and I start watching the game recorded, and, and the Cowboys are getting killed. It's halfway through the second quarter, and the Cowboys are down 21 points, 21 to nothing. And the Rams were doing everything right, and the Cowboys were doing everything wrong, and I was just... I was beside myself. You know, I was dying. The reality was the game was already over. And you know what? The Cowboys won 34-31. But I didn't know that. 
And so for the rest of the game, I'm struggling. I'm, my gut's coming out, and I'm just going, oh, we're going to lose. And now, how would I have watched the game differently if I had known the final score? <laughs> I would have had hopeful expectation. I would have had joy. I would have been saying, oh, this is awesome. I can't wait to see what Romo does to bring us back. What happened was the Cowboys came back from the largest deficit in Cowboy history and won the game. It was an amazing game. We won. Friends, that's what hopeful expectation does. It believes we win. And it changes how you go through the game. It's what Paul writes when he, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though we're down 21 to nothing. It's in the Bible. <laughs> therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 21 0. But on what is unseen, 3431. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, indiscriminate thanksgiving rejoices in what is eternal. And whatever heaviness the present may contain, it is as light as a feather compared to the weight of future glory. To give thanks no matter what, is to, open, is to open a little window in, in the present darkness to let the light of glory shine in. Lastly, indiscriminate gratitude can be an act of joyful defiance. We've all got bullies in our lives. There are things that are bigger and meaner than we are. A bad lab report. Uh, job loss. Um, bad marriage. Difficult relationship. Failure. Professional failure. We've got these bullies in our lives that push us around and keep us down. But you know what? We can stand up straight. We can look them in, in the eye and say, you're not going to get me. And we can give thanks in spite of them. They may be more than we can handle in our own power, but to give thanks is to triumph nevertheless. It is to find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You see, it was God's defiant nevertheless that triumphed over our sin and guilt and saved us. Freed us from the power of, of sin and death. Though we, though we deserved the bad thing, we got the good thing in Christ nevertheless. His blood was innocent, but he shed it for us nevertheless. 
That's how determined God was to both be just and justifier. God's nevertheless spoken on the cross as a sovereignly holy and defiant act. And if God's grace is defiant, then so should our joy be. So should our gratitude be. Just as thunder follows lightning, so gratitude follows grace. And if God's grace is defiant, then our gratitude should be defiant. If God refused to let our guilt be the final word, then we too should refuse to let life's bullies have the final word in our life. Nothing should ever rob us of our joy because nothing should be given the power to take away our sense of gratitude for God's grace in our lives. Indiscriminate grace is a powerful thing. It reorients us. Uh, I'm sorry, indiscriminate gratitude is a powerful thing as it reorients us and it it helps us hope and it and it is that defiant nevertheless and all of those things produce joy here's there's a forward takeaway for this morning if if you want to experience the joy that Jesus came to give us the abundant life. If you want to, if you want to be a star, four words. Don't complain, give thanks. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're all complainers, and we do it so easily. We don't even recognize it sometimes. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that that is a slap in your face. And that every other sin grows out of the seedbed of ingratitude. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be grateful people. That regardless of what's going on in life, we can, we can know with certainty that, that we win. And that the final score <laughs> is great, even if, it, even if it looks bad now, that we win. And Lord, I thank you that because of the cross, because of the defiance of the cross, we can be joyously defiant in the face of life's hardships. So Lord, I, I pray that you would enable us to, to have this perspective and to allow you to, um, well, that you would enable us to be joyful in all things for your name's sake.